Hello, Brattleboro, and welcome to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW LP Brattleboro, 107.7, your local community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and on this lovely Friday morning, as we are pre-recording the happy hour, I want to say welcome, Emily Kornheiser from Montpelier. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, Olga. These are interesting times we're living in. They are. Are you doing all your check-ins this morning about what the flu pandemic is doing in Vermont these days? Indeed, I am. And as well as just like probably everyone else I know, I'm also doing a frantic and not particularly helpful scan of all social media channels so that I can just, you know, escalate my panic response in order to make decisions oh yes because we always make good that decisions was panic. yes yes so let's talk about what's happening in the legislature right now around uh, COVID-19 as of I went to the Vermont Health Department of Health's website this morning they update their website at 1 p.m. every day so by the time the show airs some of this information might be out of date but at this point, we have two confirmed cases of, of the flu, COVID-19 flu, in Vermont. There are about 212 people who are being observed by the state for symptoms and, and such, and 97 people have tested negative. Um, the state has also issued a, an update that, along with people coming from who have been traveling in China, Iran, South Korea which have been some hot spots for the flu. Um, the state of Vermont has also added most of Europe to that list. So if you have been traveling in any of those areas and you've just arrived back to Vermont, the state is hoping you will self-quarantine for 14 days. But you can find more about that on their website. And uh, Twin Valley Elementary School in Wilmington, which is part of the Wyndham Southwest Supervisory Union, is closed today. Uh, for citing, quote-unquote, an abundance of caution by the superintendent. Uh, they want to do a deep clean and disinfectant of the facilities um, because they have a student who is currently being tested for COVID-19. And so to be safe, they've just gone, they're going through and they're cleaning everything today at Twin Valley Elementary. So that's what's happening right now in uh, the southern part of the state, what's happening in Montpelier. <laughs> So I'm not sure what's actually happening in Montpelier as a town. So I will tell you the bars are shockingly still very full. Um, what we're doing in the legislature is sort of a few different areas of response. We are, one, putting a lot of attention on what we should be doing as legislators. Um, what the, as we have talked about in this um, extensively, is that it is the people's house. And so as the people's house, it is always incredibly crowded. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people breathing on each other all the time. It's a very old building, so you know, very few automatic doors, and a lot of them are quite heavy, and you have to touch them. Um, there is one man whose job has actually always been to spend the entire day going around and disinfecting surfaces. Mm -hmm. But so he has now become the most important man in the building, um, and I told him so yesterday. Yes, but, take good care of him. What 
We are very aware of it. One, the legislature um, is composed of a fairly elderly and vulnerable population. Two, while we are convening, we are essentially requiring our entire support staff, um, all the lobbyists, a whole slew of journalists, and a lot of people to continue coming into the building. Even if we say they don't really have to, they still really have to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are, by continuing to operate, and as we operate, we are really um, putting a lot of people, those people's immediate health at risk. We are also, as a legislature, a perfect vector um, because we have come from all corners of the state and then we will return to all corners of the Mm -hmm. state. And so we're very aware that we're this crossroads. And so there's a lot of conversations with the Joint Rules Committee, um, which is sort of leadership of the House and Senate, to discuss ways that we can lower our um, risk and contamination. And so that involves, there's sort of signs posted on every door, any witness that comes in is being asked sort of those basic screener questions. Um, and we're looking at sort of more technology solutions for, to continue working. We're also looking at contingency planning. If we do need to stop meeting, how fast can the essential bills, the budget bills, um, and the revenue bill get out? Mm-hmm. And can we vote on them? Because those screener questions are great, but there's a quite long incubation period um, on this disease from what we understand. And so it's possible that many more people are infected than are being monitored. And so we want to be prepared um, and not take, you know, undue risks. The phrase social distancing has been used a lot, at least in circles I've been traveling in. Yes. um, Which means really just standing within six, being within six feet of everyone all the time in order to not, you know, continue the spread. What that means, that's absolutely impossible with so there's all of the things we're sort of doing to keep the people in the legislature safe, but also really to keep um, us from being vectors of this disease all over the state. And so that's sort of one bucket of work we're doing. And while that's happening, we're also working on all of the regular bills that we've been working on all session. This is crossover week. So technically all bills that we need to have, that the House wants sent to the Senate and the Senate wants sent to the House in the second year of the biennium, we need to get finished by um, later this afternoon. Mm-hmm. And so there is heightened pressure from that in any year, and there is quite heightened pressure from you know health risks and fear and a deep concern for constituents. Mm-hmm. So there's all of that that's happening. And then we are looking at two sort of emergency packages of bills. There's folks who are digging deep into our state preparedness, if there needs to be any changes in rules around state preparedness. And so that means making sure that our healthcare systems are ready. We just approved um, some telemedicine legislation that just passed the House yesterday, yesterday two days ago, uh-huh. um, to make sure that our health system has sort of the rules in place that they need to continue operating as dynamically as they can. Um, and so there's a package of work related to that. Um, how do we, what are pieces of state government that might need small tweaks in legislation in order to continue operating at reduced staff if something happens? Um, and so we're working on all of that to make sure that sort of government can continue to operate and that people can get what they need. 
Mm-hmm. Most of the attention on my committee has been on preparing ourselves and prepping ourselves for sort of after effects um, and mitigating after effects. And this is what, um, at least in my sort of lefty social media feed, we're seeing a lot of. Um, This is talking about how we can expand unemployment insurance and perhaps change some of the regulations so that if one person is leaving work um, in order to isolate and quarantine, that they can be eligible for unemployment insurance if we see reductions in workforce um, into the tourism industry, mm-hmm. we can make sure those folks are eligible for unemployment insurance and that that process can move quickly, that they don't have to engage in a work search while they are out of work, and that employers aren't going to have um, a mark on what we call their experience rating, that it wouldn't be sort of considered a regular firing or a regular layoff. It's um, sort of a without fault on both sides happening. And so we're looking at that as sort of really a way of expanding the social safety net mm-hmm. um, and making sure that both employers and employees have the resources that they need to weather this. That is so key, Emily, because, you know, one thing, it's so easy to say to someone, well, if you feel you have the sniffles and you feel you might have this COVID-19 flu, stay home and quarantine. Well, that's easy to say, but if someone is an hourly employee and they don't have a lot of economic safety net anyways, then that's a really big decision to be out of work for 14 days. It is. And, you know, the um, there's certainly a lot of emotional pressure on me right now. And I think a lot of thoughtfulness in the legislature about we came so close to passing family medical leave. Um, and what if we had, and if we had, it still wouldn't be up and running right now. Yeah, true. Um, It still wouldn't be up and running for another two years, really. It's a huge administrative project. And so I'm trying not to say what if, what if. Yes, what if we had passed paid family medical leave four years ago? What if it was universal basic income? Yes. But all of that is not going to, we're really looking at things that will help us over the next six months. Um, and the unemployment insurance system is already set up for that kind of eventuality. So we're looking at how we can tweak that system, but still stay within federal guidelines because unemployment insurance is a federal program mm-hmm. that's administered by the state. And so we're seeing what we can do within our rules while we wait for more guidance from the Fed, of which very little is coming to the agency. Yeah. So there's that bucket, which feels great. Um, later today, we're hearing from um, VITA, which is the Vermont Economic Development Authority, which is a major um, sort of economic stimulus lending institution that people don't really um, generally deal with directly, um, but it's a major resource for us, to look at packages around buying down loan risk for small businesses that need to take out emergency loans, um, and for really seeing how we can be more nimble with be more nimble with economic risk, um, mostly with small businesses who need loans. But we were going to see if that can expand other places into, for instance, um, pausing mortgage payments and foreclosures, um, which we're going to do with the Bankers Association also today. And so we're really looking at what the economic impacts are. The Another committee, not my committee, House General, is looking at renters' rights and what we can do for renters in these times. But we are, um, because we 
regulate homeowners insurance and um, all of those sort of pieces related to the banking industry were the folks who are going to be focusing on the mortgage piece. Mm-hmm. I, I'm so glad to hear that the legislature is thinking of these, these after effects or these knock on effects. Um, because I think there will be economic ripples that we can't even imagine at this point of what it means if so many people are out of work. Absolutely. And, you know, as schools close down, um, we become more and more aware of our childcare crisis and what the impact that has on working people who might um, otherwise feel ready to go to work and aren't going to be able to because they need to be staying home with their families. I also want to, like the good Brattleboro member I am, Mm -hmm. really give one, a shout out for our local food system. Yes. Um, You know, I've been thinking about, you know, my weekly grocery run and like, you know, people hoarding toilet paper and all of those things. And um, I have, you know, probably enough dry beans and rice and meat in my chest freezer to last me like through two millennia. So if anyone's hungry, please come over. But um, I'm just so aware of all of the local farms in my area that have still have operating farm stands through the winter and that I'm going to be able to go even in a situation where I shouldn't be in contact with any other people. I can just go there by myself, make sure that I'm sanitizing, pick up some fresh greens and milk and eggs and go back home. And so that feels um, like Brattleboro is a community that in that way is really going to be able to take care of sort of feeding ourselves and our neighbors. Um, and I'm, So those are sort of the big pieces. It really, Vermont, again, I mean, any crisis really highlights how much we can't do this alone. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the tweaks to unemployment insurance are much easier if we are declared a national disaster area. Um, that's what we did after Irene, um, and we need to wait on the feds for that. Our borders are very porous. I don't know if any, you know, this last weekend we were still full of tourists from, you know, the New York metro area. Um, And, you know, I certainly, if I lived in a city, I would want to go to Vermont in a time of crisis where it's, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of calm and uh, people are taking care of each other. And so this is something that we can do the best we can in Vermont, but it really is, you know, a national and international issue. And um, I'm really hopeful that Congress will act soon for, and they have some programs on the table that are essentially the national version of exactly what I described to you. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, Emily, you know, one thing I found interesting yesterday when I was having a conversation with the superintendent of Wyndham Central, Bill Anton, he was saying, expressing a lot of gratitude for the infrastructure and the folks who are doing a lot of the emergency planning in his area because he's had to deal with a, a number of, of things around COVID-19 in, in his own school system. And he was saying he, he would never, he was surprised to find himself saying this, but that how grateful he was for Tropical Storm Irene because it forced Vermont 
to really reevaluate a lot of its emergency planning procedures and that he's also very grateful that a number of the people in his area who do emergency planning after Irene sat down and said okay what did we learn what do we need to strengthen so if something like this happens again what do we need to do so we can respond better to the next crisis and and Bill said that he's seeing that former crisis and then the the aftermath of it you know the lessons learned are really serving at least his Wyndham Central region well and he was very grateful for that and I thought oh that's very interesting that I think he's right emergency planning did take on new meaning after Irene and it Irene may have done us a, a favor we never saw coming I agree. I think in our region, especially between Irene and having Vermont Yankee emergency infrastructure, we are very well prepared for um, our emergency personnel and the communication across our hospital systems is great. And they've done a lot to prepare. And in the in committee, we've been having conversations about, okay, wait, what was that tweak that we had to do to unemployment during Irene? It's exactly those conversations. Um, so we do have some familiarity with sort of next steps. And then the other pieces in some ways feel like common sense, like, okay, kids can't get to school, how do we need to expand Meals on Wheels? Or how do we need to expand access at our food bank to make sure that kids who are getting food at school will be able to access food at home? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I'm hopeful that the lessons that we're learning from this, we might carry forward even further, that, you know, using our school as the entire social safety net for families might not be the most effective or most humane path, or family medical leave is an important thing to have in place in case of an emergency because you can't really implement it during an emergency. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, as we struggle, we also get to iterate and improve, and I have a lot of faith in Vermonters for, you know, coming together while maintaining appropriate social distances to take care of their neighbors. Thank you, Emily. And on that note, We are going to hear from some of our underwriters here on WVEW 107.7, your local community radio station. I am Olga Peters, your host of the Montpelier Happy Hour. Emily Kornheiser is on the phone from Montpelier. We shall return in a moment to talk about H610, Firearms and Domestic Violence, a bill that is currently, I believe, in committee but we will be hearing more about that from one of the lead sponsors of the bill after the break. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEWLP Brattleboro 107.7, your local community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I have on the phone with me Representative Emily Kornheiser, as well as Representative Martin Lalonde from Montpelier. And Martin, I'm so sorry, did I say your last name correctly? Uh, You did. Oh, good, good. Martin is a representative out of South Burlington, and he's here to talk to us about H610, which is an act relating to firearms and domestic violence, which I believe your committee is voting on today. Is that correct, Martin? Uh, That is the plan, uh, a little later this morning. So for folks who might not be familiar with this bill, what are some of the key points to it? Well, it's, it's really a domestic violence 
prevention or domestic violence uh, homicide or intimate partner homicide prevention bill. Uh, that's really the tack it's taking, and it, it does a number of things. Um, so one, uh, one of the issues it addresses is with respect to background checks. And it's not the heart of the bill, but I should probably just talk about that very quickly first that when an individual purchases a firearm uh, from a dealer, and, and actually after two years ago, if it's a private sale, they have to do this as well, they have to get a background check uh, because there are certain individuals prohibited from uh, purchasing or owning uh, firearms. So they go to a dealer and they fill out a, a form uh, and the dealer enters this in the uh, what's called the NICS system, the National Instant Criminal Background System. Uh, and a high 90% of the time, they get in a, a pretty close to immediate response that the individual is, is authorized to, to have a firearm or they are prohibited. For instance, they have a felony record or they've been adjudged by, uh, to be a danger to themselves or others. Uh, and there's a number of other uh, ways that an individual can be prohibited. Uh, one of the prohibit, uh, prohibitions is if an individual has a misdemeanor uh, domestic assault uh, offense on their record. Uh, also, if they have a relief from abuse order or a protective order against them, uh, they, they could be prohibited. But in any event, if sometimes, a very small proportion of the time, uh, they, the, they need more time, the FBI, the NIC system needs more time to investigate to determine if an individual is prohibited. And under current law, uh, if that additional investigation is not completed in three days, then the dealer is authorized to turn over the firearm. Uh, and uh, we've, we see from certain studies, there's a General Accounting Office study in 2016 uh, that explained that uh, when an individual is prohibited because they have a misdemeanor domestic abuse charge, 30% of the time, that is not caught in three days. Mm. And what can happen in that situation is the firearm can be turned over. Uh, the FBI continues their investigation, and usually within 30 days, they will have resolved the issue. And if the firearm was turned over inappropriately, uh, the ATF uh, is contacted alcohol, tobacco, and firearms to retrieve that firearm. Uh, what we want to do is give the investigating uh, team more time to figure that out uh, before uh, a firearm is turned over. So we extend that delayed period to 30 days. Uh, and within that 30 days, uh, we should ensure that we're not uh, having prohibited people, particularly who have a relief from abuse order, a misdemeanor domestic assault offense, that they are not given that firearm because firearms in domestic violence situations is really something that we're after. So that's one part. Can I try to summarize that to make sure, sure I understand it, Martin? So essentially right now, if the dealer or whoever's selling the gun doesn't get that, yes, they're safe or yes, they're permitted within three days, they hand off the gun anyway. They, they are, what, they're authorized to, right. And, and what they this do. bill would do is give, is give the background checks a full 30 days right. to wait, um, to look for that yes. Right. 
because, and what I found really interesting, as you've explained this bill to me in the past, is that basically because of the way um, domestic assault charges and sort of misdemeanor charges related to domestic assault, and a lot of domestic assault winds up a misdemeanor because right. of a variety of reasons. Um, because of their, the way they're sort of recorded, they're sort of harder to find by Correct. the FBI because they tend to sit at local police or local courts and not sort of move right. up the chain. And so folks who might, um, folks who are sort of in this waiting period time are the folks who are sort of more likely to be in this misdemeanor category. Right. Or, or I wouldn't say yeah, more likely perhaps, yeah, I mean, the, the point is that 30% of those are not resolved within that yeah. period of time. Um, when we talk about Vermont, <clears throat> to be very you know, straight, is it, that's not going to be a huge number. No. There, there's just, we don't have that many people in the state. So um, I don't have, we don't have a lot of data. We only have data for one year, so it's really hard to extrapolate from that. But for one year, uh, there were nine instances where firearms were, provided to individuals and had to subsequently be retrieved. I don't know what the basis was. We were unable to find if that was a misdemeanor, uh, domestic violence, or some other reason. But nevertheless, national statistics we can look at, and we can apply those, I think, to Vermont. And, and even for that one year, the, the percentages kind of match up with what we see nationally. So over a period of time, there could be a significant number of people who are prevented from getting a firearm that should be prevented from getting a firearm. So, really, the, the, the crux of that part, and, and even more so uh, the component that I'll talk about next with uh, respect to relief from abuse orders, mm -hmm. is to keep firearms out of the hands of individuals that shouldn't have them. You know, we get a lot of pushback as far as we're keeping law-abiding citizens from being able to easily access firearms, uh, easily uh, exercise the right under Article 16 of the Vermont Constitution or the Second Amendment under the federal Constitution, but that's not what we're doing here. We're, we're trying to ensure that non-law-abiding individuals uh, do not have firearms in a particularly volatile situation where those firearms can be, can be used to do harm. That's, that's the really crux of it for me is that we know, um, you know, if we take sort of issues of morality out of the situation for a minute and look at sort of evidence-based decision-making, we know that if there are guns involved in intimate partner violence situations, the risk of lethality goes up hugely, right? Yes, absolutely. We, just, we don't want people dying right. because of intimate partner violence or other domestic violence in Vermont. Right. And, and it's not just that. It's when firearms are in those situations even if uh, lethality doesn't result, uh, it is used to control the situation by the abuser. But, but so a female usually, because it's 85% of the time, it's a female, so I'll go ahead and, 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 and uh, talk about it in that manner. Uh, but when, when a woman decides that uh, she's had enough, and usually that is a significant period of time, a significant point in time, uh, it's very difficult to take that step to end one of these abusive relationships because of the control that has been asserted by uh, the perpetrator. But when that individual finally uh, moves ahead, uh, she can go to the court and seek an emergency relief from abuse order. And uh, she will uh, fill out uh, an affidavit and a complaint uh, explaining what abuse has occurred, explaining the threat of abuse, um, and some other questions are answered 
currently she does not have, there's not a prompt that says, can you tell us the types and uh, location of firearms that are in the situation? And that's one of the changes that the bill does at the start of this process. It requires the courts to change these form affidavits to have that prompt. So what the court decides, the court has to find, and based on uh, the plaintiff's affidavit, and the plaintiff, the woman, the, bears the burden of proof to show that she has been abused. And the critical part is that there's an immediate danger of further abuse. Mm -hmm. So if you have those two things that have been established and that there are firearms in the situation, you have a very dangerous situation. A recent study in 2018 found that in intimate partner violence situations where there's a firearm uh, in possession um, of the uh, perpetrator, that it's 11 times more likely that a, uh, an intimate partner homicide will result. Uh, an earlier study found it five times, be it five times, be it 11 times. That's pretty significant. So when those three factors are present currently, and, and right now, whether the court finds out there's firearms or not is, is it's not definitely going to happen because that prompt is not in the affidavit. Because people aren't but, necessarily asking the question. Right, but sometimes... Oftentimes, even right now, a court will issue an order if they make those findings and will have relinquishment of firearms. That already happens. That already can happen. The court has that discretion and does so. Uh, the problem is that it's not consistently done. We want to make this very consistent because those three elements together, there's been abuse, immediate danger, further abuse, and firearms. We want the firearms out of that situation. So what this bill does is it requires the court to issue an order requiring relinquishment uh, if those factors are, are at play. Uh, it also requires certain uh, information to be put in the order uh, to, to help the relinquishment process. So it requires the court to put any information it has about the type and locations of firearms that presumably it's received from the affidavit in the order uh, to help the law enforcement understand what they're looking for. Uh, it also requires uh, the court to inform the, uh, the defendant, the person subject to the order, uh, to follow the instructions of law enforcement in relinquishing the firearms. It explains how uh, or where the person can relinquish the firearms. It requires the individual to provide law enforcement with the combinations and locks, et cetera, to, to help that process for the law enforcement. So, Are you saying that something that basically is already available and happens often under state law now, we're really adding sort of consistent procedures to to make sure that it's happening as safely as possible and consistently across the board? Yes, okay. that's exactly right. So, uh, and I think that's important to do that because we, we hear of stories where uh, that isn't occurring. Mm -hmm. um, it, and law enforcement can even try to do to, to uh, obtain the firearms. But for instance, in South Burlington, uh, Annette Lamumba, she had a couple of temporary relief from abuse orders. Uh, the firearms were not removed. I do believe that law enforcement did in fact try to do that, uh, but she dropped those. Uh, she didn't go for a final relief from abuse order. And that's another thing that, another reason we're trying to do this. Uh, is to try to give the victim a sense of safety. We hear, and there's, there's anecdotal evidence, there's surveys that have been done. Actually, in California, there was a survey done of the sense of safety that the victims have. Yeah. And if there are firearms have not been removed, the sense of safety is lower. 
And that can be one of the reasons why an individual doesn't go through to the end and get a final relief from abuse order. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why that happens. That's one of the reasons. But, you know, as I've been with women in my life getting relief from abuse orders, the fear factor is so high. And each time you have to take the next step, the fear is heightened and heightened. And as you know, people are regularly making these sort of life and death decisions about is my safe, will I be safer with a relief from abuse order and whatever fallout I might have to experience from that, um, right. or would I be safe from the abuse order? I also, you know, in um, these really heightened conversations around firearms, I would imagine that whatever we can do to be consistent and remove the perception of bias from these situations is also really, really helpful. If we know that all police departments and all courts are doing the same thing, um, the expectation of that from folks who might um, be subject to it would also really help the situation. Right, right. No, I agree, definitely. So, but, but what we also provide in the bill is that, so the next step in the process and part of what we deal with in the bill is that the order is provided to law enforcement and uh, for that whole process, we really are after some goals of having it expeditiously served, uh, keeping, uh, having safety uh, issues taken care of, and informing the, the victim as far as what is happening. So when the law enforcement goes to the door and has a relinquishment order and is serving that order, uh, after, after that process is done, uh, they send in a return of service to the court. And, and we're requiring that on that return of service, uh, it explains that uh, whether firearms have been relinquished, have been obtained or not. Wait, what exactly is the return of service? Uh, it's it's uh, just, to, it sends, it's sent back to the court by law enforcement to say, we have served that order. Okay, thank you. And once that order is served, that's when it goes into the system uh, so other law enforcement can access ah. it and see it. It also goes to the NICS. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, to the national, inf- now I've forgotten what it's called, national instant background check system, uh, so that an individual who tries to purchase a firearm and that comes up, that they have one of these orders against them, that they, they can't purchase a firearm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in any event, the, it, it also explains uh, whether the law enforcement has uh, tried to contact the victim after the service. And that's more of a prompt to make sure that the law enforcement understands that that's something that is understood should happen. So that's part of it is to try to give the sense of safety. The other really important part is that once it's turned over to law enforcement, we want to leave a lot of discretion uh, with law enforcement to, to actually undertake the process of obtaining the firearms. So they go and they serve the order and they can seek relinquishment then uh, if the individual subject to the order consents to turning over uh, his firearms the law enforcement officer can do that. If the individual says no, uh, the law enforcement under this order just can't barge in and take the weapons. They have to actually establish probable cause and get a warrant. Because one of the pushbacks on this is individuals feel that we're allowing warrantless searches and seizures of firearms, and that's not the case. Uh, It either has to be by warrant or by what's called an exception to the warrant requirement. The primary exception in this instance is consent, you know, an individual consent that, yeah, here, here are my firearms. Uh, but it's really left to the law enforcement to decide how to safely uh, do this, because we do understand that this is one of the riskier times for law enforcement as well. Mm-hmm. 
and this will increase the risk, not as far as what's happening in the individual event, uh, but there's hopefully will be more uh, instances where law enforcement is required to, to seek relinquishment. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we understand that, but we want to give law enforcement all the discretion they need to, to do it safely and also taking into account the logistics of it. If it's a house that has a lot of firearms, they're going to need to get some help uh, from other law enforcement agencies and such. So, now, so that's kind of the crux of it. Thank you, Martin. And, and I'm curious, I thought when I was reading through the bill earlier this morning that there was a section in there also for um, health care providers? If they... uh, yeah, that's, that has to do with the uh, extreme risk protection orders. And uh, two years ago, uh, we passed, uh, and, and it was enacted, uh, a law that allows individuals to go to law enforcement who will then work with state's attorneys uh, to, to petition the court for what's called an extreme risk protection order. Uh, and that's an order that can be issued that requires relinquishment of firearms uh, if it can be shown that the individual in possession of those firearms uh, presents an extreme risk uh, of imminent harm to themselves or to others. Uh, so, so that's a separate process from uh, the relief from abuse order process. And we have had some people say, well, isn't that sufficient? But the fact is that many, many women are going to the court, not for an extreme risk protection order, but a relief from abuse order. And, and they are two different situations because for a relief from abuse order, again, you have to show that there has been abuse already okay. and that there's this extreme risk that there's going to be further abuse. For an extreme risk protection order, it's a, probably a little harder to actually prove because there hasn't necessarily been any kind of abuse already. They're just projecting that this individual uh, or any kind of has a high risk. Right. Well, mm -hmm. it, but that's not even part of what has to yeah. be shown. It's that the, the risk mm -hmm. is what they're focused on. And it's much broader. It doesn't have to be. It, it could it's be often, children or neighbors. Right. It's or, often yeah. used as somebody's uh, risk of suicide. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that's probably the, the primary uh, instance where somebody is seeking to remove firearms from an individual's possession and control. And even in the case of domestic violence situations, um, I know that the abuser will often threaten suicide they're not, you know, rather than homicide mm -hmm. um, as a way of keeping someone um, Right. Yeah, no, that's definitely and helpful. So I could see it being helpful. That. So, so the, in this bill, it, it um, just clarifies that health care providers uh, may provide information, uh, may disclose information related to that kind of extreme risk. Uh, it, it really is already permissible under uh, HIPAA, but this just makes it very clear because uh, health uh, care providers really wanted that ad additional protection that, yeah, we're allowed to disclose this information in these circumstances. And so that's what that part of the bill does. And I find that um, from one <clears throat> health system to another and one health care provider to another, people's understanding um, of HIPAA tends to shift slightly right. around things like this. Right. So, so yeah, we're trying to make very clear. It's very helpful. Yeah. Trying to be very clear on that. So as you've been um, working on this bill, I'm curious because I, I do know that Montpelier can have quite a strong gun lobby or pro-gun lobby um, culture. And I'm wondering what are some of the conversations you've been having with folks who might be uncomfortable with this bill? 
Uh, well, we've, we've had uh, a lot of testimony from uh, some advocates of, of, uh, of gun rights and, and certainly have heard them out and have had dialogue with them. And uh, certainly hearing from a lot of uh, individuals sending emails um, and you know, we, we understand and we look at what the, the concerns are. And, and in fact, uh, on the background check part uh, that, that we talked about first, uh, we took into account some of the input that we were receiving. Uh, initially, we did not have any kind of uh, uh, timeline. We, we essentially just said in the bill as introduced that uh, until you are uh, authorized, until the, the FBI says, yes, you are allowed to have a firearm, you don't get that firearm. But what can happen is that after 90 days, the FBI uh, stops looking. So it could end up that an individual never uh, is authorized. So, so we took that into account and we in, in put a, a longer uh, default delay, a longer delay to allow the investigators to uh, complete their investigation, but didn't have it go on without any kind of deadline. So, so that we did take into account there. Um, and what, certainly, can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. But I've seen on this bill and um, with actually any bill that sort of gets a lot of headlines is that most people very naturally don't have time to read the entire bill or hear right. all the testimony that's happened on the bill. And so um, pushback and actually even push, you know, support for a bill often comes when people don't have all of the details and when we can take the time to explain all the details to people, I really see right. um, folks sort of stepping back from their strong reaction. Right. Have you had that experience? You know, I, think, I, I think, yeah, definitely. Not, not as much on this bill. I, I, uh, two years ago uh, when uh, we had some significant uh, uh, legislation for gun restrictions, um, I have a weekly meeting uh, in on Saturday mornings in South Burlington, and one morning I showed up, and there were a dozen people there. Uh, about eight of them were not from uh, not constituents, and they were all gun rights folks. And I talked to them for three hours, and at the end they didn't necessarily agree with me, but at least they understood. And and that's it's hard to respond to every single email and such, but but it certainly there is there are certain concerns that I keep on hearing and. Uh, I'm, I try to respond to those and will respond to those as I'm defending this bill. The, and one of them we've already talked about, which is this concern that this is going to lead to warrantless searches, which it does not. The other is that this is a violation of due process, which again, it is not. Um, and for due process to be satisfied in this situation, I'm really focusing on, and I have been focusing with you on the emergency protective order because there's, also, the bill has some of the same requirements for the final uh, order, uh, the same kind of information requirements, the same requirement that uh, firearms have to be relinquished if there's evidence. But that final uh, order is issued after hearing where the defendant can be heard. Mm -hmm. the, the emergency is ex parte, meaning that it is just the victim coming. So and people are concerned that there's due process, that you have to have due process there. And it's, it's well established by courts that if there's uh, an imminent risk uh, that has, and there's a judicial process mm -hmm. that leads to what's called the deprivation of a right. And for relief from abuse orders, it can be you are told to leave the house, you lose the, your right to live in the house, you lose your right to see your children, all, all these kind of things you know, are losses of liberty, mm -hmm. including 
relinquishment of firearms, all those things are deprivations of liberty. But it's because there's an imminent risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and critically, that there's a what's called a post-deprivation hearing, a prompt opportunity to, to, uh, for notice and opportunity to be heard. And we have that here because these emergency orders can only last 14 days. When they are served on the individual, in that order, it says this is the date when you have a final hearing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So all the all the uh, elements for due process are satisfied. Uh, I have a final question I want to ask you, Martin, um, and that's you've been sort of at the forefront of this work in the legislature for a few years, and I've seen you know how difficult that is with Democratic colleagues, let alone you know sort of <coughs> folks who are you know who are fully on the other side of the issue. I'm just curious, like, what, what is it like personally and like politically to be the face of this? I know that's like a really big question in the morning of the end of an interview, but. Right. So, well, no, that's a good question because I, I, you know, people can't see you, but you're like, you know, a tall man with a really big beard. I know that you have (laughs) firearms yourself. Um, Right. Yeah. I I mean, I grew up uh, a family that hunts. I, I hunt, I have nine firearms. Um, so I'm not anti-firearm. I'm not trying to take away people's firearms. Uh, I, you know, this is this is definitely there's a couple things. I mean, this is definitely an important issue to me as a firearm owner, as a responsible firearm owner. I think there are reasonable restrictions that you can have to help keep people safe. Um, I, there, firearms should be taken out of the hands of people who are going to do harm to others um, uh, so, or, or to themselves. It, it should be more difficult for them to get firearms because firearms are the most lethal means of uh, committing or trying to commit suicide or, or in, in domestic violence situations, obviously. Uh, so we want to have some restrictions to try our best to keep firearms out of the hands of individuals who mean to use them to do harm to themselves or others. But also there's the concept of reducing the lethality of firearms. And, and that's one of the things we passed a couple of years ago uh, with putting restrictions on how uh, large of a magazine you can have only 10 rounds for, for a firearm. And, and that's to try to give a sense of safety as well for individuals uh, when we're talking about school shootings and the like, that was kind of the focus of, of that component. So th- to be in the face of this, yeah, I, I don't know that it, it just kind of so happened to, to, that I was in the right place at the right time or the wrong place in the wrong time, depending mm-hmm. on your on your perspective, that this was a very more important bill that came up uh, a couple of years ago. I mean, it's always been a, an interest to me. It hasn't necessarily been the issue that I came to the state house to, to really push, but it's it's uh, one that needed somebody to step up and really uh, push it. So that's kind of how I ended up, perhaps somewhat by default, uh, being the person that's been leading on this. So it's been very interesting. I like controversy too. <laughs> <laughs> and there's been plenty of that in this one. Indeed, indeed. Your committee yeah. as a whole, I think, is the plenty of controversy. Yeah, the number. I tried yeah. on that, so that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Now, um, so we are just out of time. Martin, thank you so much for joining us this morning and and talking to us about H610, uh, the Firearms and Domestic Violence Bill. This is very key and very important to many of our listeners here in Wyndham County. Um, 
we are out of time so we're going to head out send everyone into their lovely rest of their friday and their weekend um a note because we are in the middle of a flu pandemic the commons has started the newspaper i work for has started a running page of cancellations and updates on the virus in the area you can find that at commons news Org. And Emily, I believe there's been some changes to some of the local legislative meetings in Wyndham County. They'll be happening virtually? Yes, absolutely. Our monthly meeting um, with Brattleboro State Representatives, um, Tristan, Molly, and myself is scheduled for tomorrow at 10 a.m. Um, and normally we meet at the library, but we are going to do that meeting via Zoom this month and people can either call in with a phone or use Zoom for sort of the full video capacity. Mm -hmm. And I think it will really be interesting to see who joins us and who might not have otherwise joined us. And maybe this is something that into the future we'll do monthly for folks who don't want to leave their house on a Saturday. Yeah. And so you can find the link on Front Porch Forum or um, on Facebook, or if someone wants to email me at ekornheiser at gmail.com or ekornheiser at ledge.state.vt.us, I am happy to send over the link and look forward to seeing people through my computer screen tomorrow at 10 a.m. That's brilliant. Now, will you? are you still holding your office hours at the co-op? Um, no, I think I'm going to do those virtually as well. Okay. Ooh. Thank you. Whole yeah. new world of technology. That is exciting. Mm -hmm. Indeed. And, and Martin, just one I last thing. I promise to wash my face. <laughs> yes, wash your face. Don't, mm -hmm. And don't touch your face either. Remember that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, and Martin, uh, just as a quick segue before I let you go, this bill is being voted on today? Uh, that is the plan, uh, that we're voting it on uh, out of committee uh, today. And assuming we're back next week, uh, it should be on the floor of the House on Wednesday, I believe. Fantastic. So if you want to read more about the bill, you can go to Vermont.gov and then pull down the legislator, legislature's website and find the bill there with a quick search. Martin Lalonde uh, from South Burlington, thank you so much for joining us today. And this has been the Montpelier Happy Hour. Everyone have a good and healthy weekend. Wash your hands. Thank you. <laughs>